0: Between the time when wargamers played with chainmail and the rise of the wizards of the coast, there was an age of gamers. And unto this, Gygax, destined to bear the crown jewel of TSR upon a troubled brow. To show you all how to roll for initiative.
1: The Roll for Initiative podcast, issue number 79. I'm DM Vince, sitting alongside DM Matt. Hello, everyone. And DM Will.
0: Hey there.
1: And Nick is still not here. I'm sure he's going to be sad after he hears the special insert we just recorded. But what are we going to do? The man had other things to do with his family that's more important than
2: games. Right, guys?
0: Yeah, that family is important. Right. Mm -hmm. That it
2: is. Especially when they surprise you with parties. Yes, exactly.
0: I thought he was looking for Easter eggs. No, he's not (laughs) looking for Easter eggs. I thought that was what it was. (laughs) Oh, Lord. All right, so let's head
1: right into uh, our sage advice this week. Master, Master,
2: they're at the gates again. Master, it looks like another band of adventurers.
0: Adventurers, again? Always the same. Coming to me for sage advice.
1: Sage advice this week. RFI staff at gmail.com. We we actually have two emails this week. The first one comes from uh, Sheldon, not from the Big Bang Theory. And uh, (laughs) he actually says, uh, thank you, you, Will, for returning to the show. And uh, he also wants to know, How do you deal with players, characters who don't show up to games? I've tried to deal with these PCs who don't show up in a number of ways, such as ignoring their existence for a session, acting like nothing happened, but I feel like I'm cheating the rest of the party. On one occasion, there was a uh, TPK, which could have potentially been averted if the missing player was there. I just don't feel right letting my players, who can be a little rascals, take control of missing person's character. But I also don't like playing the PC myself for a session as it takes out of the immersion. Please help. Love, Sheldon.
0: <laughs> I love Sheldon, huh?
1: Yeah, I love Sheldon, it says.
0: Well, Sheldon, thank you very much. I am back, and I'm going to stay here. <laughs> uh, you know, this is funny. This is a very good question, and I'm seeing this uh, occur a lot, and not in first edition uh, groups, but I'm seeing this a lot in uh, the the Pathfinder groups because the minimum amount of players... Is for people. If a player becomes sick or if if something happens and he can't make it, what are the options? Well, there's two options. Uh, Suspend playing that game for that day or weekend and play board games. Or two, I mean, you could always have an an alternate adventure with alternate player characters and, and play that game, you know, until the other player comes back the next week. I mean that that's what I look at that's what I recommend.
1: I've done like the NPCs just not there do the thing like how you said ignore ignore ignore. Right. And you know if it's you're not there it's, you know you can't be there. Life happens. What are you going to do? And so I've done the whole thing like you know what do they call autopilot NPC. And then I also let other players take over for the character but when you do, like he said his group's a little rascals you have to say every time the DM suspects something stupid that you're doing like, haha, we'll throw him in like Nodwick. <laughs> yeah. It means like really would, would Jim do that with his character? Would he just run into there and stupidly do that? No, he would not do that. You have to think like you know, and you penalize the player if they actually take another player and purposely try to kill them. Right. You take control while, you know, they don't have to be an M a role playing character Could be an NPC character just floating around, but you got to trust someone in your group eventually.
2: Yeah, it's for me. I usually I never let up another player play another character, another player's character. That's just I wouldn't even consider it because half the time we don't even have the character sheets. Each individual player will keep their own character sheet and bring it every week, so that wouldn't even be an option. And what I usually do is just come up with a valid reason why this character is not with the group for this session, um, like when I ran my Star Wars game, the Wookiee wasn't there one day. So he ran off for Life Day. (laughs) Oh, He had Life Day to attend to. (laughs) Or uh, one time the pilot couldn't make it. He had some bad food and spent the entire session in the bathroom on his ship. I mean, just... I mean, they're silly little things, but... Four minutes. Yes, exactly. Especially when the rest of the party needed to get off of the uh, planet really quickly, and he had locked the door of the ship, the uh, cockpit door, and they couldn't get in. So they decided to bust down the cockpit door because he wouldn't come out of the bathroom. (laughs) Uh, But I usually just try to find a plausible reason for that character not to be a part of the party and then just continue on with the uh, session and just have – and then at that point it's on the characters to know we're down a man. We better act accordingly. So if a TPK happens because, yeah, they're undermanned, but the players are just getting in way over their head when they should know better, that's on the players. They got themselves killed while their uh, other buddy, who is not part of the uh, TPK because in my game he would be off doing something else, can actually next session come back and try to save them or resurrect them or whatever.
0: See, that's the key thing right there too, just like you said. It also depends on which party member is gone. I mean if your only fighter is gone, you got a problem. If your only cleric or only thief is gone, you got a problem.
2: Right. Yeah, but it just comes down to uh, if you have like duplicates of a class, like if you have two thieves, two clerics, two fighters, losing one of them isn't the end of the world. You don't completely lose balance, but it – I'm not one to re- really stop the game unless we're at a pivotal point where not having all players there would hurt or if what's coming up focuses on that player that will not be there. Then it's time to bust out the board games or one-shot something else. It's like my group, we like one-shotting uh, Top Secret SI. That's yeah. 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 For us, that's just the... Okay, we got this little mission we need to go. Go in, break into this office building, steal these files, get out. We can easily do that in one game session. We have oh. our fun with it. And we even keep characters from our one-shot session to one-shot session. So, Yeah,
1: that's a good idea. Have them ready to go. We'll just pull them out. Okay, guys, pull out the uh, – we used to do that a lot with um, – when D&D, we didn't have enough players. We would pull out Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and play that for one night.
0: Right. There you go. See, Yeah. <laughs>
2: I love that game. Yeah, some games are just better suited for one-shots than they are campaigns, and those are great games to bust out on those or situations.
1: If you have a really goofy night pull-out tune. Yeah.
0: Wow, I haven't heard that in a long time.
1: Yeah, if you just want a goofy night. You know what's the funniest thing, watching players from a later edition play tune? Like, 4e for, for players or 3.5 players, just because they don't grasp the concept of you could do whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying it's every player like that, but the majority of them I've played play <laughs> I'm like, what do you do? They're just like, um, 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 like, you're a cartoon character. What do you do? Um, um come on, you're a cartoon character. What do you do? Think Bugs Bunny. Uh, uh, like, so come on, you pull a hammer out of your butt. Come on, do something.
0: Yeah. Wile E. Coyote, you know what I'm That's saying? Roadrunner, right. you know?
1: <laughs> Some of them just don't grasp the do idea of free form RPG like that, but right. you know, it's fun. Yeah. Okay, next letter. Thank you, Sheldon, by the way. Uh, Next letter comes from T.C. Walker. I haven't listened to all the episodes yet, so you may not have already covered this. I think it would be awesome if you guys did a show on how to convert stats and abilities from other editions of D&D, say from 4E to 1 or 3E to 1 or 0 to 1 or 2 to 1. Maybe some other related systems like Castle and Crusades or maybe even Pathfinder could be covered too. Oftentimes I find a cool-looking module or a splat book from some other non-1E system, and I want to get it, but I don't know how to do all the conversions since I don't have enough experience in 1E or the system in question. Keep up the good work, TC. I think we'll do that next show, actually. What do you think, guys?
2: Yeah. Yeah, because there's quite a few like interesting monsters that are specific to Pathfinder or to the various other games that it would be interesting to bring them in. As, and for the people that may have a lot of the old 2e monstrous compendiums just yeah. what are the fine the little tweaks you have to do to those monsters to make them work in first because i know like me and jen talked in the special issue we started with that hybrid first second because we came into that weird transition period when we first started gaming so like i was using a first edition dmg with second edition monsters and there's Little differences between the monsters. There's not quite as easily uh, pulling one into the other as it w- would first appear. Just really, uh, mo- mostly just because of the difference between Thaco and first and second. I think that's the big difference.
1: Yeah, Thaco is a bit off from first edition because it doesn't have the repeating twenties and things like that. But right. I think once you get passed up. The four or five fifth level doesn 't do that anymore,
2: yeah, but most players when they start they 're going to be starting at the lower levels mm. That I think you 're going to see that more, but I mean again it 's nothing major it 's just little there 's just little differences that yeah. I think it might be interesting right. to point out well, what do you think?
0: Oh, I could tell you right now, I do tons of conversion, and you know doing all those reviews for uh die hard game fan and looking at all the supplemental materials out there i mean i bought i have bought so much stuff over the past 33 34 years and, you know, it, it would be a waste not to say, this is only exclusive for one edition. How can I convert this over to first edition? Uh, well, let, I, I can tell you the simple way. A goblin in first edition is a goblin in second, third, and fourth, yeah. regardless. You know, I mean, that's the easy things. Yeah. Now when you start doing with the aberrations, and, and this, I tell you, I am an absolute fan of giving monsters classes and that's what a lot of monsters have in those other editions like 3.5 Pathfinder and so on. Uh, they're still a goblin, but now they're a goblin warrior or a goblin magic user or a goblin cleric. I mean, converging. I mean, co- uh conversion is very easy. It you know, simplifying it, no problem. Take what you like, get rid of the rest you don't need.
1: Yeah, I I've never had a problem converting something from Pathfinder to 1E. Yeah, just or second edition or third, even just I guess because I have experience in them. It's probably easier for me as opposed to someone who has no experience in it. Right. I just would find like Will said, find the monster, say uh, it's uh, a skeleton warrior. You'd like, okay, it's a skeleton warrior. Let me look in one E and see what I can find the closest thing to skeleton warrior. Okay, skeleton. Let's just beef up the skeleton just a little bit. And there is my monster.
0: Right. And you know that the funniest thing about it is, though, there's nothing wrong with giving monsters like, you know, skeletons are primers, and I'm glad to use that as, as, as excellent, is that skeletons might have some type of damage resistance because of their, you know, their. Their hardness or their brittleness, I don't know, depending on what kind of weapon you use. We already know that if you try to attack a skeleton with an edge weapon, you're going to do half damage. Well, guess what? That's damage resistance. (laughs) In in Pathfinder, it's damage resistance 5 blunt. What that means is if you use any kind of weapon besides an edge weapon, or besides a blunt weapon, five points that damage is negligible. So, I mean, it, 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 it is compatible. It just, you just have to go through all the word, you know, the word twisting and everything. It's the same thing. Yes. It's the same thing over. You know? Yeah, no, excellent. I think that's a great question. I would love to do that in the next show. That'd be awesome.
1: All right, cool. We'll hang on after the show, guys, and we'll discuss that a little bit. If you are seeking any sage advice, RFI staff at gmail.com, 570 865 4210, the
0: hotline. <laughs> you don't have Nick here to sing for you.
1: I know. I know. <laughs> Nick, Nick, Nick. And let's head into our first segment of the night.
2: Yeah, I remember back in the day, a fella knew how
1: to judge a fireball on the fly and how far the cleric could push the undead he turned. I tell you, with all these min maxers and munchkins, metagame and power game, there's something missing that I'm here to learn you.
0: Now sit down and crack your book while I commence to teach you some. Table Manners. So, on today's Table Manners, we're going to talk about pixies. <laughs> now, I'm not going to tell you why I'm going to talk about pixies. That's between me and Vince, but we're going to talk about pixies. <laughs> I think it's because of short people, but that's okay. It's all good. Anyway, now, just just for today and everything, well, maybe not just for today and everything, I'm going to get away from the the by-the-book mentality because, as we all know in first edition AD&D, pixies are not a playable race for players. So in this case here today, we're going to talk about pixies as a playable character race by players in a first edition game. Now, when I think about pixies, uh, some people will think about sprites. Is that how you say them? You call, you call them sprites, right? Yes.
1: I, oh, yeah.
0: I don't call them spritz. I hear some people call them spritz, and I think, like, that sounds kind of weird. But, um, uh, sprites, uh, leprechauns, brownies. What are those other ones? There, there's some other ones out there. I can't even think what they're I, I I don't want to say fairies. They're not really fairies, because yeah. fairies are a very generalized term and everything.
2: Yeah. Brownies, sprites, pixies. uh... uh Dryads, but no, they're taller, but they're
0: oh, all a little bigger. Dryads, yeah. Satyrs, and you know, those kind of people and everything, you know, the, the fae folk, the green folk, as you might want to call them and everything. Now when I when I think about Pixies, I, I and sometimes I mess this up and everything. I think about like Tinkerbell and, yep. and Peter Pan, but I think she was a fairy though.
2: Um well if you go by later editions, uh right? she's a Pixie.
0: See, that's what I thought. But then when you think of Pixies, uh you know, pixies are normally bigger. Pixies are not that small. Right. And then I saw the movie uh, Pan's Labyrinth, I believe it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where that hideous monster with the eyeballs in his hand was eating those little things that were flying around. Uh, remember, she went to that table and it woke mm-hmm. up or something and it grabbed one of them, ate him. I don't know what, what those, that thing was. Anyway, but uh, those things right there reminded me of sprites because sprites are actually smaller. Uh, when I look at pixies, and I look them throughout various different editions of D&D, uh, Pathfinder, I even looked in uh, some supplemental material f- uh, produced by other companies like uh, en- Encyclopedia Divine, uh, Fay Magic, and then the other one called Into the Green by Bastion Press. I see some, you know, talk of pixies, but pixies in general are about two and a half feet tall. That's how big they are. Now, in the Monster Mangle, they're not covered as being two and a half feet tall, but they're considered small. Mm. So, well, I mean, it says two and a half feet tall there, but I'm talking about in the physical description below. It that, that That's what they say small is two and a half feet tall. So I don't know if that is a tall pixie or if that is a medium-sized pixie for its, you know, middle. Uh, I mean, can you have a tall pixie of three feet tall or... Can you have one that's four feet tall? That, that's a big. Why not? Answer. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, really, it's your game. Why not? Right. Yeah, pixies with true. giganticism.
0: Or yeah, acromegaly, like uh, Andre the Giant. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know that kind of stuff and everything, but yeah. So, pixies can they be a playable uh, playable? race for players absolutely i see no reason why they cannot be a player race and you know basically if anything pixies would make great fighters and they would make great thieves i don't think they can really do too much else i mean but most of the round can around those little small bows and and uh they carry swords so i, I think that that would be the two character classes they they, they could pick on was fighters and uh, thieves, what, be great. what if great. you wanted
2: to throw in uh, unearth arcana and make a pixie barbarian horde?
1: <laughs> just
2: imagine <laughs> a horde of pixies, you just hear the buzzing of their wings in the distance, and there's just in giant <laughs> mass, it gets louder and louder, and this giant mass of barbarian <laughs> pixies just destroying every town in their <laughs> path.
0: I, you know, I'm gonna say this. I'm not gonna take anything away from anyone's game. If they want to have a horde of barbarian pixies, go for it. I can tell you, I'd be running. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot of that's a lot of pixies. Well, can
2: oh,
1: I can honestly see pixies being druids too.
0: And you know what? You're right, Vince. You know they can be druids, being that they're fae folk. So yeah, definitely druids. And, and I'm. Uh, forgive me for you know leaving the druid. out. I love druids, and pixies would make perfect druids as well. So definitely thieves, fighters, and and druids. Maybe not so much as thieves. I mean, well, th- their alignment is neutral, so I guess they could be neutral good in alignment. And that would be another case there too. If they if if a player does use a pixie as a as a as a, play, as a playable race alignments would have to adjust to. So then again, the typical alignment for a pixie is neutral. If it's played by a player, they would have to match the alignment of the, uh, you know, the, the the character class they want to use. So yes, druid be perfect because they're neutral alignment. Anyways, that is, that's generally what they are. Now, Now, go ahead. No, go ahead, Vince.
1: I didn't interrupt you. Will we uh, hinder some of the attributes you think?
0: Oh, attributes. Well, I could tell you right now, being that they're small, Uh, You know, they're going to have a natural armor class and everything now, uh, depending on the DM, are they a magical race? Are they going to be just like a typical normal race that has, you know, innate abilities like drow elves, for example? I don't consider drow elves a magical race. No. You see, I'm just a yeah. race with innate magical abilities, and I think we would have to treat the same with Pixies, that they're just a, mm-hmm. a playable character race with innate abilities. And, you know, I think they're allowed to dispel evil. Uh, now, that's another thing that a DM has to take into consideration, because per the monster manual, they dispel evil at the eighth level of ability. That's extremely powerful. So I would say as a first level character, no matter whether it's a druid, a thief, or a fighter, it would start off at dispel, um, you know, magic would be at first level ability. When they get to second, then it increases in power until a maximum eighth level.
2: Hmm.
0: So they have dancing lights, they have ESP, Uh, I think that some of them, rarely, some of them do have that Otto's Irresistible Dance, which I think is hilarious. That's absolutely hilarious. I just could see that happen. I think it said 1 in 10, yeah. 1 in 8. It's 1 yeah. in 10.
2: 1 in 10. So one, and, yep. it, and then they're also normally invisible as well too. So
0: Now, see, that's interesting. I saw that. I saw that in a lot of the uh, supplements that Pixies in their natural state are typically invisible, and they can turn it off and turn it on. So now this might be a case where an ability like that might be lost because they chose to – Go this route of of dealing with humankind and so on. So, again, this is the thing with drow elves in the very beginning. All drow elves were typically assumed to be evil, so no one would ever ask to have a drow elf in a party in first edition. It wasn't until Arnold Darkana came out saying there are some... Good elves, so in this case, here, I think there would be have to be a sacrifice. so, if you want to play a player character and, and a pixie is one of them, I think they would have to forfeit that right to that invisibility because that could be a very overpowering you know ability oh, yeah. innate ability for them so again it, it it's up to a DM to adjudicate this kind of creature, and any other creature of this size events hint hint brownies leprechauns, <laughs> and so on, you know. <laughs> if you want to play these characters with these innate abilities. Yeah. So, so I mean, you know, it was the same thing with Drow Elves. People said, like, wow, they have a lot of innate abilities. Yeah, they do have a lot of innate abilities, and and they they could be overpowered if you had multiple of them. But if you just have one in the party, it can't be that bad.
1: I would probably treat it, like, as if it was a classic D&D race class thing. I'd make it, since you said it's limited to, like, three different things. So I would say like a Pixie Fighter, it's its own class itself right there, Pixie Fighter. And And that's perfect. And make up its own experience chart.
0: Yes, Yes, I think so too. Now, another key thing with Pixies is their magic resistance of 25%. No problem with giving it a 25% magic resistance in lieu of the invisibility. They lose the invisibility, but they keep the 25% magic resistance. Again, they they are a magical being. I see some DMs out there said like, well, if you choose to, you know, and this is a great example though. Remember when we was talking about dark elves and how their their magical swords or their magical stuff and everything had to be exposed to that underground radiation, but once they got away from that radiation, they would lose it. Mm-hmm. The same thing can apply with pixies and their special abilities. They have to remain in a certain area, uh, within a forest, so deep in there, so that they can attune themselves to that 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 natural force of, of nature, which give them that innate ability because they're given this ability to uh, you know defend the forest or defend wherever they live at the woodlands. I mean, like you can have jungle pixies right. and and savanna pixies or desert pixies. They would look kind of funny looking, I think, mm-hmm. like little cactuses running around with little thorns sticking out or whatever, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, or, you know, they, they live in arid conditions. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, part of the nature of living within that environment. Right. Once they leave that environment, though, they start losing those abilities. So, for example, the first thing that would go was invisibility. Now, magic resistance, on the other hand, you could say instead of giving them 25%, maybe 10%, and that's it. That's the minimum magic resistance they can have. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's great, you know. I think pixies would be great. They're only two and a half feet tall. Uh, how how big are kobolds and goblins? They're about two and a half feet tall, right? Maybe three.
2: Yeah, I think three to four.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, well, they're still small, though. So, you know, again, like I said, great playable race. Uh, you know, they're just they're just a little smaller than normal, and they're definitely smaller than gnomes, that's for sure. So, and, and, you know, their ability to fly, though. They have the ability to fly. They would never lose that ability to right. fly. Yeah. So that's an interesting. But just remember now, if pixies are in armor, depending on what kind of armor it is, that will limit their flying ability. Right. So I don't see no pixies running around in full-plate armor like a cavalier. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. And plus, if you think that uh, having a pixie be able to fly it could unbalance your game, you could even say – yeah, they can fly, but they can only fly like five feet. So that way, they're at they can actually be eye level with all their, their taller companions. So as opposed to, well, I'm going to fly on top of this twenty foot cliff as opposed to climbing it.
1: Don't pixies have to rest after like an hour of straight flying?
0: You know, that's a very interesting question, and that would be something in the DMG to look after how long someone flies if they have to rest, and that could be a great you know penalty applied to the yeah. flying depending on how much weight they carry. And uh, my thing on flying is, and I'm going to tell you straight right now, you want to fly, and that applies to anything. I don't care if it's a magic user or if it's a druid on a chariot or sestar or whatever it's called and everything. If you're flying, you're putting yourself out to open to be attacked. You know, if someone's got ranged weapons, there he goes, there's the druid, that's right, come on out there and fly, and the same thing goes with pixies. Believe me, you know, if I see a pixie, I'm shooting it with arrows. (laughs) Well, uh, well, no, I really wouldn't be, that would be a bad person doing that, or a monster doing that to attack them and eat them and stuff. I mean, think about it, look what ogres would do. If a pixie went into an ogre cave, the first thing you would see is all these little pixie fly traps that you'll hang up in the cave and have to catch pixies flying around. So yeah, they could set it all up and everything. Uh, Goblins would have nets. So, you know, Got to be real careful about that flying. A good DM would do it right, depending on the foe they face. So now I, w- I wouldn't be flying. If I was playing a pixie character, I would only fly if it's absolutely necessary to. Absolutely necessary. Now, another ability they would lose is that ability to put uh, enemies to sleep with that uh, sleep arrow attack.
1: Mm, yeah, you yeah. have to pull that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that would have to go too as well. That's just a, an innate ability that is given to a pixie if they're defending a forest. So, again, so, you know, if you leave the forest and not defend me anymore, I'm not giving you the ability to put people to sleep and everything. Because understand now, they're not hostile creatures. I only think they would be very hostile to people like, you know, just like druids and dryads and sylphs and nereids and anything that deals with nature. They don't like intruders damaging their forest, the, the place where they live at, basically is what it all comes down to.
1: I have and, seen plenty of plenty of female characters coming into the game. Oh, I want to play a pixie, so this is a perfect example. To...
0: You know, that's 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 you know, I would have no problem with that. Now, uh, what was that move? I'm trying to think. A oh, oh, Willow. That was what it was. Remember Willow? Yes. Yeah. Now, I'm not talking about those two morons that were dressed in those rat costumes. Those were brownies, I believe, right? I think so. They called them brownies. They, those were knuckleheads. But now, remember when uh, Willow met that, that lady that flew around the forest? What was, it? Was, was she a fairy, or was she like a pixie? Or... Remember her?
1: I don't remember, honestly.
0: Yeah, she was there talking to him and you know, telling him that what he had to do with the baby. And you saw all the little things flying around, the little fireflies. I guess those were all little fairies or something. I don't know. They were little pixies. So I guess however you want to determine you know, what they are and everything. So, again, they're protectors of the forest.
1: I know you did a uh, a thing with pixies or fairies on. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched the TV show Merlin.
0: Oh wow! I ain't seen that in a while.
1: Yeah. Well, no, the, the newer one that came out of the uh, out of the BBC network. Right. They had a whole thing with the pixie or fairy was able to convert transform themselves into a human for a certain amount of time, and had to keep taking a dose of a potion to stay in human form. Otherwise, they would become a pixie all over again. Wow! Really? Yeah, it's kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, because I saw that in the Peter Pan movie because that's what uh, Tinkerbell did. She became, like, full-sized for him. Yeah. I don't know why she did that. Anyway, I guess he, like, said, no, I don't like you. You're ugly or something. And then she got mad and she shrunk back down to her little size and everything. So (laughs) it's just interesting and everything. But uh, like I said, I was reading some supplements on them. and, And, yeah, Pixies, definitely a playable character race. You know, the DM has to adjudicate very carefully how it's going to overpower the game or actually underpower the game. Because I can see disadvantages. And, you know, I don't think Pixies would typically normally go underground and and mess around underneath there and everything further and further away from their woods. So, but yeah, I agree. I think that Pixies can be a playable character race. Uh, Good luck on that. (laughs) Well, come on. you. Let's think about it. I want to play a pixie in there. Okay, Will, what are you doing? <laughs> well, I, <No? laughs> would expect,
1: you know, I wouldn't expect you of all people to be sitting down at my table saying, I'm playing a pixie tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Big Bad Marine playing a pixie. I don't know. Yeah, I don't
0: know. <laughs> that would seem kind of weird. Yeah, it would, Will. I
1: just see playing a brownie. No, I'm kidding. <laughs>
0: A br- oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. Actually, brownies are pretty cool and everything. Uh, they're kind of weird looking. I don't like them in the monster manual.
1: We'll save that for next week. No, I'm
0: <laughs> Don't you dare. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. We already talked about something else we're going to do, so don't you dare. Give me another short person. Okay. Well, what about you, Matt? Would you allow Pixies?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, when it comes to races, I'm pretty lenient on letting players play anything. But, yeah, just like we've discussed I would tone down some of their innate magical abilities um the flying I may even limit that some just because I could see oh there this dungeon could have some floor traps just fly over it and st- uh, so you just have to keep in mind that your players you have one player that can fly over things um but I think I see nothing wrong with it. I mean, it could even make for some interesting stories. If you know a player wants to play a pixie in advance, you could start tailoring a story around, why is this pixie roaming with this dwarf elf and human? Uh, So you can, I think it opens up some different story options. Or if you wanted to have a campaign of nothing but these, uh, like, fey uh, forest creatures, you could as well. So you could have your satyr... With your pixie, with your dryad. They're all trying to uh, defeat something that's causing harm to the forest.
0: Yeah, that's a a good example. This may be just a temporary character. This might be a long-term character. So that that's a real good point, right, that you brought up, that this could be just a temporary character thing. You know, maybe the other character's stuck somewhere. They've got to save him. So guess what? The character that's been removed from the game, guess what? You'll be playing a pixie ally, and you'll play this character until your character comes back into the game. Yep. Right. I like that. Good idea. Excellent.
1: And also another negative I was thinking about about the pixie. The bigger they are, the louder those wings are going to be when they flap.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so that pixie thief is going to have some issues if he decides to fly.
0: Right, right. Yeah, you know, and like I said, you know, Pixies, they have a lot of innate abilities, and it just, uh, yeah, the DM has to adjudicate on that. The flying definitely is, it could be a plus or a negative, but again, give me those limitations, and then a Pixie would be a very playable character. And I, I meant to tell you about that Otto's Irresistible Dance. That's a nasty spell. Yeah. I don't, I can't recall what level it is right now, today, but doesn't that the person just keep on dancing and dancing and can't yeah. stop?
2: They keep dancing till they collapse.
0: Oh, that's not good. That's no fun.
1: Oh God. It just reminded me of Buffy the Vampire
2: Slayer episode. The oh, musical oh. episode.
1: Yes. <laughs> the one musical episode when they kept dancing and they couldn't stop dancing until they died.
2: Oh, that's
0: horrible.
1: Yeah. Because of one of those demons that kept... Oh, never mind. I won't get into that. <laughs> no, yes, I, I watched the show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh-huh. Laugh Laughing me all you want.
0: No, it's okay. Buffy was good to go. I had no problem with it.
1: Yeah, watch the angel too. Okay, let's go on to the next (laughs) section. Go ahead.
2: (laughs) Oh man, what the heck is that?
0: Understand, you fool! I have a spell that will work here.
1: What do you mean I can't hit with that?
2: Oh, right. Fine. Show it to me in the book.
0: Welcome to Game
2: Mechanics.
1: Okay, we're sitting here in Game Mechanics. This week, we're going to talk about some optional rules that are not actually rules in the game, but a lot of people tend to think about this when they think too much about armor class. We're going to talk a little bit about armor class and body parts. Now, I I know you guys are probably maybe once or twice sitting there with... when you're playing a game thinking about, well, I'm wearing a chain shirt, but that doesn't really cover my legs. That doesn't really cover my head. What about my arms and legs? So we were talking about the armor covers less, so that leaves a worse armor class for different parts of the body. This is, obviously, you don't have to do this at all, but it's just a thought. So if the chain shirt covers you with an AC of, say, six for your top, what about your legs? What is the AC for your legs? It's obviously going to be less because you're not wearing chain on the bottom. You only have a chain shirt on. So you have to think from a monster perspective here because if you're in a battle with another person, another PC or another NPC, say like an L or a human, more than likely they're attacking you in a somewhat traditional fashion way of hack slash get the body chopped ahead. You have to think monsters scraping and scratching are going nuts all over the place. So they'll tend to hit things like legs, chins, uh, palms of hands, backs of necks, things like that. So, I would think, as a DM, you would probably drop the armor class slightly down. Will, what would you think about doing that?
0: Let's see here. Let's talk about this for a second concerning armor class and body parts. Uh, now, since we're talking about first edition AD&D, I know that there's a lot of people that heard of a game called Hornmaster. Hornmaster was, I mean, was an awesome fantasy medieval role-playing game, which... Uh, well, this is what happened. If you put on chain mail, uh, chain mail will protect, you know, certain parts of your body. However, if you wanted to protect uh, other parts of your body, such as your legs, uh, your arms, your head, your neck, and your hands, you had to wear the appropriate pieces of gear. Now, right. as we all know, and, and I think that was an excellent system, one of the best systems out there ever. When it came down to those kind of specifics, let's be realistic. First edition AD&D is extremely abstract when it concerns armor. What uh, now, Hornmaster, master? Like I said, if you put on a chain shirt, the chain shirt would give you an uh, 10. And now, now understand that weapons going to be different now. Watch this now. Okay. Um, the chain shirt say gave you five. Let's say you had another piece of armor. Uh, I say You have another piece of armor underneath the chain Because you can't wear a chain shirt just on bare skin So it gives you another piece of protection Underneath it So your total protection to your chest area Was a 7 Or an, let's give it an 8 However certain weapons for example Like Um blunt, piercing, and slashing would do certain amounts of damage versus certain types of armor. In this case here, the chain shirt with that little piece of leather underneath there gives you protection of 8. A great sword does 8 points of slashing damage, but does only 5 points of blunt damage if you use the flat of the sword, whatever. So depending on how, if you hit them will determine whether or not the damage penetrates that armor to the actual physical body part. So yeah, you'll have multiple places of, of, of armor on each body part, like your legs and your arms and your neck and everything. And unless that weapon can penetrate it, you know, you won't take no damage. However, the armor itself gets damaged. And after so much damage, it begins to weaken. So then, yeah, the more damage you take, the less your, the, the armor will protect you. And then, of course, then you'll take that damage physically to the, uh, the actual body parts. And then if we get into damaging body parts... Well, then we have to start looking at other systems where, well, if you take so much damage to this limb, how will it affect your mobility? How will it affect your defense? How will it affect your ability to attack people? Uh, and so on and so on.
1: Well no, go, ahead. Class go ahead. Based on your ability to move around and the armor you're wearing. So if a body part such as a leg is chopped, for example, or wounded, that's going to make your armor class drop a bit. Yes. Yeah. It's totally agree. Common sense. You just think about the um, the LARPing people out there. Every time you hit a body part, they drop it and they hop around. That makes you a lot easier to hit because you're hopping around. Yes. And you hop when they chop off both legs, they're on their knees on the ground. Even though it looks kind of funny, but that's kind of <laughs> it's their realistic way of dealing with the situation. You're a lot easier to hit doing like that. So. Right.
0: Right. And so yeah, that's the big key thing is everything. So you'll my advice is on people that really want to get into those kind of optional rules is look into alternate systems of how they used you know, use that armor. And protecting certain parts of the body Master would be the number one priority The next one would be chivalry And sorcery These are older games They were around in first edition They get into the second and third editions Later on into the late 80s And I think almost into the early 90s Until there was no more left So yeah but definitely great options on that I like that because that actually then of course that would require probably A different type of character sheet Because you're going to have to write down And I think I posted a uh, one of those things on the OSR website mm-hmm. you know on the forum of what a character sheet looks like for a uh, a person that plays in harmaster wearing different types of armor and explaining how could you damage this person and then it comes to critical hits or not critical hits but the called shots mm-hmm. i want to hit his arm i want to hit his leg i don't want to hit his chest i want to hit his head all that stuff applies
1: Right, and I know people probably saying, well, why don't you just use the weapon versus armor class chart that's in the book? This is something a little bit different than that, so.
2: Yeah. Right, right.
1: Screaming that out loud.
2: Right, it's more reminiscent of, like, Top Secret SI. where Yeah. You know, where yeah. on Top Secret SI, you actually had your little uh, cartoon of a person, and you actually had hit points or hits you could take per body part in every time you made an attack part of the role was determining where that attack would hit. So, yeah. if you're if you weren't specifically aiming for like the right hand, you would just roll to see what did you actually hit because not when you're swinging a sword, not everything's going to hit in the chest. Some may hit the shoulder, some may hit an arm, you may hit them in the head or or maybe the left knee. You, so, if you're breaking it down into armor by a specific location, You may want to, just for every attack, called or not, determine what body part was hit by this swing. Just to add that little extra bit of realism to it.
0: Right, right. Yep, I agree with that and everything. Yeah, I'll tell you, I I, I like those kind of systems. They bring in that degree of realism and everything. But, of course, you know, bringing a system into a game, like into first AD AD and D. It's an abstract system, so it requires some changes as far as how much damage. Now, this is where weapon damage is set, so no matter, you know, what weapon you use, it does a set amount of damage. The great sword will do 10 points regardless, so there is no more rolling for damage. Now, there is a critical hit and uh, a critical fumble. A, um, well, actually, let me change that. It's not a critical hit, but actually it's a, a uh, critical success, a moderate success, a critical... Uh, a moderate failure and a critical failure. And so uh, usually on those mo- the failures, you usually miss. Critical failures, well, it could be something bad. You could damage yourself in the process. And the critical successes and the moderate successes will tell you how much more damage you do to that person, how much of it might bypass that armor. You just might have hit a certain portion of armor where a little bit more of that damage gets through and hits the body. Oh, so... Yeah, it's, yeah, that's excellent. I think it's a it's it's a great optional rule out right. there if you want to bring a little bit of realism into the game.
2: But I guess the question is how far would you want to take it? In second edition, in one of the player and one of the option books, they actually had all of those uh critical what? hit tables broken down by body part. So, uh-huh. if you do have like a critical hit to like the left arm, do you want to ha- have that be more like a permanent injury as opposed to just you've taken hit point damage to this arm? uh, Or do you want to or if you took like a critical hit to like the stomach, do you want to say, well, you're going to be bleeding to death in two turns? Hackman had a great chart for that too.
0: Yes. Yep, they sure did. And you know what? That's funny how you bring that up because when you bring up Hackmaster or other games like Rollmaster with the oh my lord. (laughs) I mean If you want to take it past armor and, you know, what kind of armor and weapons are hitting you, you can do it with spells, too. And uh, now you will need a cleric in the game. I don't care what anyone says. If you don't have a cleric, you're done. Right. Yeah, yep. because you had to, yeah, you know, and, and then then you can put in like, well, a cure light wounds will only cure superficial wounds. You know, cuts, abrasions, maybe certain types of, you know, slices and pierce, depending on how, how much damage you took. But let's say it won't fix a broken bone. You'll need a cure, you know, critical wounds or a cure serious wounds that do more of the serious wounds. So, again, all that stuff you have to take into consideration if you decide to add that little bit of realism that you're seeking. Right,
2: it's like uh, the Deadland system has that they break it. They have like five different wound levels per body part. Yeah. So, so if you, <laughs> yes, so that way you can have well, you've taken this much damage to your arm. That means you're this minus to hit. Oh, you've taken this much to your leg. You're this minus to your speed. And and as a, you take more damage, those negatives become more and more, and it becomes harder and harder to heal them as well. Without magical means. Another good system that does that is uh, aces and eights. Yes. Yeah, a lot of the Western games actually break down damage by location because when the early age of gunfighting, that was actually really important. But you could apply something like that to AD&D. The only thing you'll want to be careful about is you could end up bogging combat down a lot. If, especially if you start set, using the random lo- hit location for every swing of a sword, mm-hmm. so it's a matter of figuring out what that happy balance is between adding that little extra bit of realism, but not at the expense of a fun game experience. Because this is AD and D, like we said, is an abstraction of combat. It's not a simulation. You can bring simulation into it, but if you try to make it too much of a simulation, the system just really doesn't hold up. Yeah, we tried doing
1: that in my former group, that every time you got hit, it was roll percentile with and see where you got, it was just, to a point, it was just like, enough, off.
0: Yeah, it, it becomes a game not like the first edition AD&D that we know. And this is why I say to people out there that if you're trying to bring this realism to first edition AD&D, you're going to have issues. There's going to be a lot of issues. And, you know, why bog down a game that's already good enough as it is? Mm -hmm. If you really want to get into games that provide that type of realism and detail and, and you don't care about time. Chivalry and Sorcery and Hornmaster are are the top two recommendations I can tell you, because I'm telling you, those games do not mess around. And then, you know, they add stamina to it, because guess what? If you are heavily armored and you are swinging a sword while you're carrying a shield, you're going to get fatigued. You're going to get tired. And that's why I like that whole stamina, you know, stat in there. So after a while, you start getting tired. You know that sword is getting a little heavier and heavier. It's getting harder to hit people, and you're not moving around as much and everything because a person, and you know plate mail armor, swinging a sword, carrying a shield, trying to defend himself from the opponent's attacks, it's just going to tire you out, and it all adds up at the very right. end. Right.
2: And so yeah. yeah. And it's just like when we talked about the uh, wilderness survival guide with the temperature of what you're fighting, and that it will affect you as well, so if you really wanted to get into the simulation of it. So between the fatigue of being in armor, then throw in the effects of the weather in that armor. Armor, while, yes, it provides some protection, really isn't that effective at fighting for long periods of time. It's meant for short bursts. You're not You're not going to have 30-minute quick blow-for-blow blow combats in armor. Okay, cool. All right, tell us what you do out there. RFI staff at
1: gmail.com. And we'll head into our next uh, segment. That is not dead, which can turn up up And with strange times, he can deathly die. I welcome the unwary to the Creature Feature Theater. Creature Feature Theater this week, we have a monster called the the Verbeeg. I've always pronounced it that way. Am I saying it wrong, guys?
2: I would say Verbeeg.
1: Verbeeg. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. Verbeeg. Verbeeg. Anyway, if you turn to the Monster Manual 2 on page 69, basically, these are gargantuan humans. They're almost giant-like. They're about 10 feet tall. And they're very intelligent, and they're neutral evil generally creatures, and they seem to be commanding hill giants around and they're usually found where all giants are. I don't understand how they can they can uh, command hill giants around. They're huge, so how so how could you think they could control a hill giant? They have superior strength. They usually throw spears, and um, you won't really find any females in the group. Maybe one or two, and usually they'll generally be the leader of the group with one additional male. Now I was thinking about these creatures today. I was looking at them. They can be considered if you look at them really quickly, they could be considered humans.
2: Yeah. And it actually in the description even talks about, they have a humanoid appearance for the most part. I mean, unlike your ogres and your hill giants that are more uh, deformed and out of proportion. These are more just eight foot tall humans.
1: Yeah. They, they, you could just look at them and go, Oh my God, they're giant humans coming into town. But meanwhile, they're not
2: right. And, and really, I think the only reason they're leading the hill giants and the ogres is they're a little brighter. So it, they've got that uh, average to very intelligence, which is more than you can say for your average ogre. So, that's, so they become the kind of the de facto leader just be, by that alone. They can plan a little bit better than the rest of the people they're hanging around with. So by, be, so by default, since they're the smartest one in the room, they get to be the leader.
1: This, I like this one example I have here at the end, that they're, like, they're deformed a little bit, and they're also human hunters. So you could, this could be, like, your your, your typical, like, bounty hunter in the middle of the town. You go find him in the dark seedy part of the town, and you have, like, Jimmy the Square Foot or Jack and Iron. It was Jimmy <laughs> yeah. the Square Foot. And you're like, yeah, I got this problem with this guy named Will. Uh, <laughs> I don't like him too much. Uh, here's a hundred. Want to take care of him for me? And this guy... Like, <laughs> there goes no 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 we all love will
0: well guess what that very big better bring a whole bunch of hill giants and ogres with them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man that's too funny
1: how would you guys use this guy
0: well you know very big this is interesting because I was just reading some Forgotten Realms was the Forgotten Realm novels and someone was killing a whole band of them, but I just can't remember who it was. See, I read books for the, their entertainment purposes, then I forget about these guys. But I know that the Verbeek were allied with some other giants that I can't remember the whole thing on them, or maybe it was ogres. But no, I would gladly use a as a as the big, bad, evil guy, and you have to deal with his ogre and hill giant minions. Definitely, no problem at all.
1: You know, what I can see this guy doing a very big coming into this large city, going to the uh, the leaders of the city, sitting down with him saying, listen, I want every month a thousand gold handed to me without question, or I will unleash this giant, massive force of hill giants to crush your city. <laughs> kind of like the whole mob situation. And then the players come in or are hired secretly to go find where their headquarters are and take out this guy.
0: Oh, yeah. Something like that. Well, I like, to, you know, the thing about Verbeaks, they can be shamans, which is very interesting. Because, again, here you got a monster with a class, a character class. It's a shaman. So, again, you're dealing with a creature that, that is very uh, diverse and uh it just, it just, it's just—you know—the uses for these for these monsters, especially this specific one—is is, is funny. But the funny thing you said, it like you said, how can they be commanding hill giants? Yeah. Okay, well, hill giants are like over ten feet tall. These things are between eight and a half to ten feet tall. I'm thinking, like, hill giants take orders from a short guy? Not happening. Yeah, yeah.
2: I just, I never made sense to me, but yeah, yeah. It just. Sounds like the Verbi They kind of are like the bullies. When it, yeah, yeah, it's more like they like bully yeah. these bigger things into working for them. Which the only reason I can think they can get away with this is just due to their intelligence. They can pull off either traps or like uh, lord over the other hill giants. Well, if you don't do this, I will use my magic shaman powers.
0: Right. And yeah, then, I think that uh, hill giants have a low intelligence anyway, I believe.
2: Right, so all of a sudden, yeah. a little bit of magic could go a long way in convincing a hill giant, maybe I should follow them. They're not that much smaller than me. They're not like the puny humans.
0: Right, and I think the leader, the very leader, always has an eighteen one hundred strength. That's kind of weird how they said that. Yeah. Always has an eighteen one hundred strength. I'm thinking like… Okay, so now we know that every time we run into a leader of these things they have an eighteen one hundred strength. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's just yeah. funny how they mentioned that in there. Right. And like you said, the deformities, that's kind of weird how they said that because then when when you said deformities, Vince, I said to myself, Hey, this almost sounds like they're kin to Fomorian giants. Yeah. Who were hideously deformed all the time no matter what. You yeah. yeah, I
1: could totally see in this as a PC possible class race thing.
0: Oh, yes, totally so because I know they are in second edition because I believe the Verbeek is one of the ones in the monstrous humanoid handbook or the – I can't remember the name of that.
2: There was – it was – oh, what was it? There was like the – there was a book on like giants. Yeah, something like that. Monster mythology. They were in that. Well, I could see totally just – giant craft. That's the book I was thinking of. Making them eight foot tall and uh, allowing them to play either a
1: fighter-type place class. Or maybe even you could design a shaman type class, or yeah. make them a cleric type class, or something. Give them limited spells. And, oh yeah! And they'd have to remain a neutral alignment because it does say neutral, and then parentheses evil. So right. I guess some of them could be a standard neutral alignment.
0: Yeah, I think what they mean by that, I, I, if I'm correct, now i Don't don't quote me on this, but I believe when it has the uh, the the axis in the. Um, in parentheses, they're typically neutral in alignment, but they have evil tendencies. Right. I believe that's what that means.
1: Right. Yeah, I usually take it that way too.
0: Yeah, that, that doesn't mean they're always neutral evil, because then, uh, you know, like the arch Lich, or I'm sorry, not the arch, but demolich is neutral evil, but it, is, it doesn't have that in parentheses. <laughs> they are neutral evil.
1: Well, they are evil, trust <laughs> me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I think Verbeeg are an interesting humanoid race. Again, and you're correct, I believe this is a, definitely a very PC playable character race. No problems. Just got to take into consideration, though, when the players choose this creature, make sure you kind of make them on the short side. Because what happens if the dungeon, uh, the, uh, the hallway is only, you know, seven feet, eight feet in height, and here you got a guy that's ten and a half feet tall? Yeah, yeah. There's gonna be problems.
1: And, and don't and don't design them to be the big dumb guy too, because they're not dumb. That that because someone playing this eight foot guy walking around going, "Which way did he go, boss? Which way did he go?" <laughs> that's not these creatures. These yeah. are intelligent creatures. Yeah.
0: Yeah. When they say they're standard to very, I mean, average to very intelligent, I mean, very intelligent. That's that's awesome. That that speaks unto itself, right? They're very intelligent. They're not dumb. They're ugly, but they're dumb. I'm not dumb. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, they're they're trackers. They hunt people down and kill them for sport and for fun. So,
0: yeah. So I think uh, I'm just paying look. Yeah, it's just amazing how how, how they get these things set up, though. But that's awesome. No, no, no. Verbi, good to go.
1: Good to go. Next segment coming up next.
0: As the secret portal yields to your efforts. Stand amazed at a vision from the most fevered dreams of avarice before you lies the dragon's horde
2: and now in the dragon's horde this is something that I can actually play off our uh, discussion in uh, issue 78 on uh, creating uh plus magic weapons we're going to talk about recharging magical items Because in the DMG, it really doesn't go into, how do you recharge that Wand of Magic Missile? Is it even possible? Um, I know myself, I've never really had any players try to recharge, but then again my players also tend to, when they get a Wand Staff or Rod, not use them. It's like they just keep saving it for that rainy day, but they (laughs) never actually will use it. It's like, we must hoard this powerful magic item instead of using it um as i was going through like there was a couple articles in the dragon that talked about this process though Be- uh in dragon 136 on page 46 it was, in an arcane lore it talks about this problem of recharging these magic items because magic items as in the DMG, it takes a lot of work to make. So if you want to recharge it, it shouldn't quite be as strenuous and time-consuming and expensive because you already have this masterwork item you're holding. And it should have, and still has some magical power imbued in it because if you use all the charges in a magic item, it disintegrates in your hands. So if you fully drain a rod, staff, or wand, It's gone. So there is no recharging something that you've expended all the magic power in. And this article, it actually brings up the use of a recharge spell. Uh And this spell, it talks about, it's a level 4 magic user or level 6 illusionist. And you would cast this spell, and what it does is it makes the wand receptive to having spells cast on it without damaging it. So if you have, like, a wand of fire, you can then start casting fireball on it to recharge it. (laughs) And you wouldn't actually be fireballing the rod or yourself because part of the requirements for this recharge spell is you have to be holding the item. So you would then cast your spells and it recharges. But there's a little catch. It's not just as simple as okay, I have this wand. It has ten. Char- it can has up to ten charge spots. I'm going to cast my spells, because it actually talks about with the charges. You don't know exactly how many charges are left when you go to recharge your spell, your wand, because uh, it says whenever you go to recharge, you roll a d6. On a roll of one or two, the caster believes the actual number of charges is actually one to two, four below. On a roll of three or four, he knows the exact number of charges on the wand. But five or six, he actually thinks it's there's one to four more charges available than there actually is. Because if you try to overcharge <laughs> a wand, what happens? That spell actually takes effect on the wand, or in the case. Of the uh, staff of power. So if you overcharge a staff of power, it explodes in the same manner as a retributive strike was made by that staff. Boom! Yes. So, much like magic creation, recharging isn't an exact science.
1: We get it. Um, the group I was in formerly, we, he, his answer to everything was always gnomes. Go to a gnome. They'll know how to do it. Find a gnome. They'll know how to do it. Right. <laughs> now, nice. with with with, the, with, with Joe, with my friend Joe, the DM, oh. he always never told us. like You would always would be able to find a magic user that would do it for you. But he would never tell you how many more charges you got. And the prices were always randomly different. But they were high-level magic
2: users. Right. Yeah, that that would be a good way to keep the economy in your game under control too. Yeah, by that's another place a party's money has to go if they want to keep recharging these magic items. Yeah, because I've never actually seen an official official. I mean, I'm sure Gary has mentioned it
1: somewhere in one of the thousands of threads somewhere out on the internet, but I don't consider that like you know canon rules. So, I mean, even if he says it, doesn't mean it's canon.
2: Right. Yeah, because really there is no rules for – official rules in any of the hardback books <laughs> for recharging uh, magic items because I don't think it was intended to be done. Yeah, like for example,
1: Will in his whole – how Will does combat is a lot different than most people do combat for first edition because he's reading it as written.
0: Uh, yeah.
2: Right.
1: When truly it's not written that way exactly, but we'll get into that in a <laughs>
0: That's funny. We're going to start that again.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, I started doing it. And I was like, nah, never mind. Anyway, so charging your magical items. Tell us how you
0: do it out there. Or if I staff at Gmail. Oh, oh. I got something to say. Oh, you do? Oh, yes, absolutely. Tell us. I didn't know you had something. I know a magical item you can, you, can, uh, you know, uh, charge up anytime you want, provided you have the spells. Remember the ring of spell storing? Yeah. Yep. See, now that, that's an item that's specifically designed you know, to store spells that when you get rid of the spell in order to get that spell back in there, I believe you have to cast the same exact spell back into that ring of spell store and that specifically stores those specific spells.
1: <laughs> you do that ten times fast? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was doing that on purpose anyway, oh, oh, but yeah. No. Now, I, as a matter of fact, as I remember back in the days, I agree with you, Vince, that there is no uh, – there's nothing out there specific. It's not canon, and, and I do exactly just what uh, Matt said right there is. I don't know exactly – and that's how my place goes. So you don't know how many charges it actually has, and if they use that last charge, the item disintegrates. It's useless. You can't charge them. Hmm. So
2: there it, you go. Yeah. I mean actually just thinking, you could even – if you wanted to do something – Think of, like, the Green Lantern, the the Green Lantern power ring. That has to be inserted into the lantern and recharged. So it's that's another way you could do it. Yeah, you have this wand, but you have to take it to this certain spot and let it sit for however long to get it to recharge. But if you completely deplete it, guess what? It goes away. So perhaps you could just tie it to a specific location instead.
0: So, yeah. you. just give it a What's that? Give, it to Vince so can, give it to Vince so he can take to those gnomes.
1: Yes.
2: La, la, la. Oh,
1: that's... <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, like, my friend always... Every time we charge a weapon, we gotta go find a gnome. a <laughs> hilarious. If, you know, it's like, you go find a gnome, it's like he put it in one of those machines, and he... <laughs> they'll fix it for you. It's like, okay, gnomes have these magical
2: machines, okay? Then you come across a gnome that's like, but all I do is cook. I don't know. I'm the cook. You're a gnome. You're a, you can fix magic items. But not, no, just because I'm a gnome doesn't mean I can fix everything.
0: <laughs> that's too funny.
2: All right. Tell us what you do.
1: RFI staff at gmail.com. All right, I guess that's going to wrap up the show this week. Uh, I just want to remind a few people out there because I've heard a few comments about this. By no means at all do we claim to be experts of first edition or the leading authority of first edition. There are no leading authority. If anything, Frank Menser, maybe Tim Kask, those guys would be your leading authority, not us. We're just someone. We come here. We love the game. We like to throw ideas out there for people to listen. And if it walk, we walk away with someone saying, hey, that was a cool thing that Matt brought up. Maybe I'll use that in my game. But then we win right there. I'm just, yeah. You know, I want to throw that out there because people are saying, some people were saying, well, they think they're the leading authority. We're not at all, not at all.
0: No. no, no. I know at no time will I ever tell people that I'm the leading authority on first edition AD&D, even though my experience goes back, you know, thirty plus years. I just, uh, I mean, hey, it is what it is. <laughs> I don't know it all,
1: and and obviously the podcast is done how we want it done. I mean, it's not, gonna, not everybody's going to like the style that we do it in. Not everybody's going to like everybody on the show. You like who you like. If you have a problem, start your own podcast. We have no problem with that. No.
2: Right, guys? No. And heck, if it's good, we probably will even mention it on the show. Because yeah. anything that actually just makes the OSR community better, we're for. We want people to play games and have fun. And yeah, if, and if we're pl- and if you're playing your game, you're having fun, and you're get ha- bringing in more people to the games, great. It's not like if there was another pot- first edition podcast that you can only listen to one. You can listen to both. We can, everyone can get along because yeah, we all have a certain take and style of show we put together. But and if someone wanted to go and put together something that was more strict by the book or focused specifically on third parties or a million different other takes that you could go. More power to you. Do it, please do it, because there's always room for more content on this topic. Yeah, plus we get to listen. Exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's good too. You know, like I said, my whole point on doing this and me going to gaming conventions and and all that stuff and everything is to promote gaming as a whole. Because we all know where it's all going to and everything, but promote gaming, and you know what? I will never be exclusive. I'm very inclusive, and you know what? And even even you know it's funny to say that you know Gary Khan, uh, Gary's son even made it plain and clear that Gary was never exclusive. He was always inclusive of other games. Yeah. So yeah, be inclusive. Don't cut everyone out.
1: Exactly. All right. So let's see. What was that new catchphrase that someone said in the forums? Keep it original, play with rocks and dirt, everything else is fluff.
0: Is that what it was? Yeah. <laughs> I-, I thought they said, who needed Will Wheaton when you have Will Cohen? <laughs>
1: uh, that's your catchphrase. We don't have,
0: okay. we don't have Will
1: Wheaton when we have Will Cohen. <laughs> well, I think it was Rotten made it up. He said, keep it original, play with rocks and dirt, everything else is just fluff. <laughs> that funny? That's funny. Rocks. <laughs>
0: Goal for initiative.